available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello, welcome to Outlook. This week's edition is being recorded on Wednesday the 23rd of August. And coming up this week, we have got the uh, piece by Margaret telling us about another old building, the Charter House. A piece about Jippy the Dinosaur and prehistoric animals. More animals in chickens and Arthur Parkinson. A short story from Cynthia Townsend and a second part of Dave's visit to Sheffield and a little quiz to test your brains. Plus, of course, your usual features of postbag and sport. But we start with a review of the past week's local news with Elaine and myself. Outlook News. Coventry Council's finance chief has issued a stark warning that the authority is rapidly running out of options as it faces a huge budget gap. The council is forecast to be more than £12 million over budget for the current financial year, after steps have already been taken to reduce the costs. The situation is so serious that Councillor Richard Brown, Cabinet Member for Finance, said he is writing to the government to ask them to step in. It comes as social care costs spiral in Coventry and beyond. Councillor Brown said in 2011, 40% of the budget was spent on social care. This year, it is almost 70%. But costs across the board are also increasing. Councillor Brown previously warned that difficult choices are ahead and that he could not rule out budget cuts. It's not only Coventry that's facing difficulties. In a press release, Coventry Council said that authorities across the country are reporting that the impact of inflation and increasing demands is making it impossible for them to manage within their existing budgets. As the Coventry City Council announces a forecast to spend overspend of £12 million in its first financial monitoring of the year, Councillor Brown said that the Coventry City Council, along with other public sector organisations, is heading towards a tipping point with difficult decisions needing to be taken. Following on from an overspend of £6.7 million in 2022-23, a shortfall which had to be covered through a contribution from the Council's reserves, the Council continues to face further significant financial pressures. Councillor Brown has pinpointed that the majority of the problem has been caused by rising costs and increased levels of demand in adults and children's social care, which are continuing to see unprecedented rises in expenditure. The Council's Quarter 1 Finance Report will be discussed at the Cabinet on Tuesday the 29th of August. The net revenue forecast position in 2023-24 of £12 million over budget after the Council has already taken a range of actions to reduce expenditure. Coventry has been named one of the UK's most relaxed places to live and there are a number of reasons why. The city has been ranked in the top 10 of the most less stressed areas in the country. That is, according to latest research from UK CBD brand, Brown's CBD, which analysed a number of key metrics that contribute towards how relaxing a place may be to live, such as anxiety levels, median weekly pay, 
and average distance to parks, gardens or playing fields. These metrics were chosen due to their impacts on a person's well-being and stress levels and Coventry was ranked 8th above Aberdeen and Nottingham. But nearby Derby topped the list of the most relaxing places. According to the data for Coventry it said Coventry is a city in the West Midlands. It is known for its medieval history, notably its magnificent cathedral. The city has undergone significant redevelopment and offers a mix of historical and modern attractions. Coventry has an average weekly earnings of £652, which is above the average of all cities. Anxiety is also less prevalent, 3.11, than much of the other cities in the UK. Lawrence Brown, director of Brown's CBD, said, Modern life has become fast-paced, expensive and frequently complicated. These additional stresses can adversely impact our mental and physical health. Cities with more access to gyms, health clubs and green spaces, such as parks and gardens, provide residents a higher quality of life, making life more relaxing and reducing anxiety and stress. The research shows a clear correlation between how location, job and personal health can impact mental and physical health. Finding time to rest and relax can be difficult due to the commitments that we all have with work, friends and family. However, it's still important to consider our own well-being. By setting aside time from as little as 30 minutes to a couple of hours a day, for hobbies, sports, social clubs, or even just watching films or TV. It can reduce stress in other areas of your life and make you more relaxed and focused. Older people living in a Coventry sheltered housing complex are being told to leave their homes as the building is set to be used for homeless families instead. Residents of Ribbon Court in Foleshill were given Section 21 notices on the 16th of August after receiving warning letters. They have just weeks to find new homes and must be out by the 20th of October, according to the letters. Residents say the situation is heartbreaking and they are worried about where they will go. It comes as Ribbon Court, a housing scheme for the over 55s with extra care for those who need it, is set to be closed down. Provider Green Square Accord say not enough people are living in the building and the scheme isn't financially sustainable. The flats will instead be used as temporary accommodation for families in the city experience homeless, homelessness, a spokesperson confirmed. Supporting residents to find new homes is their number one priority, they added. But for people living at Ribbon Court, the news has come as a shock. They said they feel it's not clear what help they will be receiving. There are around 35 to 45 residents of the flats, including a person in their 80s and people with disabilities. Many cried when they heard that they'd be asked to leave, residents told the local democracy reporting service. A spokesperson for Green Square Accord said, After careful consideration and working closely with Coventry City Council, we have made the difficult decision to change the use of Ribbon Court. From the 20th of October, it will no longer operate as an extra care sheltered scheme and will instead fulfil a new purpose to better cater for housing needs in Coventry. 
working closely with the council and subject to approval, we intend to use the building to provide a temporary accommodation service to families in the city experiencing homelessness. A Coventry Amazon worker has been recognised for selfless efforts in the Eritrean community. He has been instrumental in helping numerous Eritreans in Coventry settle into their new lives, but now Metainog Bagbriel's tireless efforts are receiving recognition. Metain, who has worked at Amazon since 2020, has been commended by colleagues for his remarkable efforts in helping the Eritrean community, connecting them to employment, accommodation and learning the English language. Since arriving in the UK in 2005, he says his passion has been to help immigrants and provide them with the support they need as they adjust to life in their new home. Methane opened up a community centre dedicated to helping the Eritrean and local black community, which now has hundreds of members. Speaking about his work, he said, Today, my ambition to help people is stronger than ever. Whilst in the UK, Methane's selflessness continued to flourish and he opened up a community centre dedicated to helping the black community. This group has helped numerous Eritreans settle in the UK and provide them with the support they needed with job applications, accommodation and the English language. It still runs today and has more than 300 registered members. As part of his voluntary role, Medhain also works alongside Coventry Council, helping to secure funding for accommodation support and community outreach. Being nominated for the awards and being recognised for his efforts was a touching moment for Medhain. Speaking of his nomination, he said, It was so wonderful to hear about my nomination for this award. I do my best for the Eritrean community, and to have my efforts recognised with the award nomination was surprising and touching. He added, I want to extend my sincere appreciation to the entire leadership team at Amazon in Coventry for their unwavering support and dedication to the black community. Looking ahead, I am eager to collaborate and work closely with the Ben board to solidify our outreach and support to the Eritrean and black community as a whole. A call has been made for a network of support for Coventry charities and community organisations as the city faces high levels of poverty and record demand for struggling services. The call has been made by Sunny Breach, who founded the Sky Blue Support Project two and a half years ago. The project provides hot meals and food parcels to those in need, holding street feeds in Willenhall or Hillfields at 1pm on alternating Saturdays, using donations from local businesses such as the Binley Mega Chippy and major chains including Sainsbury's, Nando's and KFC. Now Sonny, who already uses his connections to help other Coventry charities, believes an online hub could be created so charities could support each other more. More than 31,400 Coventry children were in poverty in 2021-22, while last autumn the number of people sleeping rough in a single year in the city rose for the second successive year. Coventry Food Bank recently reported unprecedented demand for its services, while Clothing Coventry has recently reported financial struggles and Homelessness Charity has announced plans to close its Coventry city centre. 
A fitting tribute has been paid to the UK's oldest milkman, as his coffin was laid on the back of his milk float. Derek Arch died last month, aged 95, and only stopped delivering in the Coventry area about two years ago, having started in 1943, aged 14. His funeral was held at Canley Crematorium last Wednesday. He had hoped to keep delivering until a hundred, but sadly he didn't make it, his friend Gurmit Sandhu said. After Mr Archie's coffin was driven to the crematorium gates in a hearse, Mr Sandhu said it was put on a float for the short journey to the entrance. It was something special for him, a fitting tribute, he said. There were about a hundred people there. His immediate family obviously knew what was planned. Speaking to the BBC in 2018, Mr Arch said he believed he was the UK's oldest milkman as he marked his 90th birthday. Despite celebrating, he still got up at 2.30 BST to travel to the dairy to prepare for his 5.30 round. He delivered to more than 200 homes in his home city of Coventry over three hours. It was the business he carried on after his grandfather founded D. Arch and Son in 1873. Mr. Sandu said Mr. Arch lost his wife Betty only two months before he died on the 25th of July. The couple had had to move into separate care homes, he believed, about a year or so ago. He was a lovely man, they both were. He was very friendly, he got to know a lot of people on his rounds. We've known them for about 20 years. He said it was, he was sad after she died and he missed her. Seeing the coffin on his milk float was quite a spectacle, he added. It was nice to see him like that. It's something he's done all his life. He would have liked it. New owners of a much-loved Coventry pub have been told that they have a hard act to follow. News broke earlier this week that, after more than two decades, Lee Watson and Tony Dore will leave the Greyhound pub next month. New owners are set to take over the popular boozer, and Coventry Live readers have urged them not to change the format that has made the venue so popular over the past 21 years. Partners Lee, age 59, and Antony, age 56, said their time at the pump will come to an end on September the 28th, describing the decision to step back as really difficult. Lee said that the couple felt honoured to have been at the helm for over two decades, saying their time at the boozer was filled with fun and adventure. This sentiment has been shared by Coventry Live readers who took to Facebook to pass on their thanks to the pair and just some words of advice to the new owners who have yet to be named. Alan Talbot wrote, I had a brilliant meal there last time I went and Anthony really made you feel welcome and part of the family. I hope the new owners can measure up to this standard. Patrick Healy added, Great lads, done loads for charity over the years and the armed forces. Sorry to them go. All the best to them. Up to two billion of investment will come to Coventry under a new 15-year energy partnership set to be signed off by councillors next week. Green projects such as a new solar farm will be developed through a joint venture between the City Council and a private energy industry partner. The scheme has been in development for 18 months 
and is part of the Council's drive towards net zero, according to a report. Councillor Jim O'Boyle, Cabinet Member for Jobs, Regeneration and Climate Change, said the move will help create local jobs and tackle the green skills gap. This is a major step and we will become the first city in the UK to take such positive action, he said. This is going to have benefits for all of our communities, our businesses, our residents, the entire city. Five key projects related to reducing emissions will be developed by the energy partner, a council report said. This includes solar panels for schools, decarbonising buildings and strategic energy security planning. It also covers a planned 30MW solar farm by Lenton's Lane, which is pending planning approval and could power 7,650 homes once up and running. At least three more decarbonisation projects will be worked on every year. The move won't take competition out of the market and measures will be in place to make sure best value is delivered, the report added. The news comes amid wider plans by the City Council to tackle climate change under its still developing climate change strategy. The new venture means the Council can take a more long-term and joined-up approach to managing energy and decarbonising. Decarbonising should also help cut the city's energy bill, estimated to be an eye-watering £635 million in 2023. A private report with more details on the scheme will also be considered by the Cabinet next week, and the partnership is set to be signed off formally next month. The energy partner involved will be named in the autumn, the Council said. Families have been left at their wits' end after a nightmare year living in a cockroach-infested hell. Residents have said that their lives have been turned upside down as the creatures continue to wreak havoc on Ellicombe Road in Henley Green. Cockroaches have reportedly been found in clothes, drawers and fridges as well as in bedding. A number of residents have reported the bugs to citizen housing, with the problem said to have begun in July 2022. Resident Terry said he had been without a bed for four months because the creatures had climbed into the mattress and the bedding. He had also been forced to shake his clothes on a daily basis as the bugs had taken over his drawers, the dad of three claimed. Terry told Coventry Live, Cockroaches are in every flat and I have had them in my fridge. I have also had to throw away my bed and sofas. Terry said he and several other residents have had their lives ruined by the awful living situation at Ellicombe Road. He said, it has all been no fault of our own, but our lives have been turned upside down. He added, I do not want to go home every day. I hate it. I try to stay at my friends' houses for as long as I can, so I don't have to go home. It's horrible. A spokesman for Citizen Housing said, We are sorry to hear about the experience our customers living at Ellicombe Road have had in relation to cockroaches. As soon as we were able to gain access to the property, which was the source of the infestation, we carried out the required work. Almost three weeks after Coventry bin drivers voted to strike again, there have been no updates on whether action is going ahead or when it will take place. No strikes have been announced by Unite, which represents the drivers, and has to give the City Council two weeks' notice of industrial action. 
Over 40 bin drivers at the council are members of the union. Last month, a number of drivers voted to strike over a move by the council to end a working condition known as task and finish. The practice allows bin men to leave work after finishing their rounds, rather than stay until the end of the day. The council says the condition has been challenged as unfair by another union. Talks between the council and Unite broke down on the 31st of July. That day, union leader Sharon Graham said a strike action is inevitable if the council doesn't abandon its plans. Lead officer Ona Kosabs also said action would be announced in due course. Commentary Council dubbed the move towards strikes as bitterly disappointing and said they would try to minimise disruption for residents if it goes ahead. The new standoff comes a little over a year after a long-running strike by bin drivers at the council over pay finally ended in a deal. More than 70 drivers who were members of the union took part in an all-out strike from the end of January 2022 to July. While some bin collections were said by residents to be disrupted, the council hired new staff to keep the service going for most of the strike, but the measures were very costly, and along with lost income from contracts, led to a multi-million pound bill for the council. Speaking at the time, leader councillor George Duggins said the council couldn't give in to demands by strikers for a higher pay grade, or it would be hit with equal pay claims of £30 million per year. He also said it was important to keep collections going to avoid the disastrous impact on public health from waste piling up in the city. The deal last year saw bin drivers get a 12% pay rise, but not a higher pay grade, plus a £4,000 bonus for agreeing to future Christmas work hours. Also speaking at the time, Unite leader Sharon Graham said the deal was fair and just pay award for workers. She said the win represented a new direction for the union, which would defend its members whatever it takes. Outlook News. Thank you to Elaine for helping me with the news there. It's not very interesting news this week. I think August is generally known as the slow season for news, and certainly it's been a bit like that in the Telegraph. So we, we did we did the best we could with what we had. Um, talking of the, the weather and the time of year and whatever, um, the nights are starting to draw in. I've certainly noticed that. Sunset now is down as 8.18, but well, I don't know, it seems to be even earlier than that. And sunrise is 6.03. So we're still getting some reasonable amount of sunshine on a nice day, but then we seem to get a miserable day as well. We're, you never know what what the weather holds in store. Haven't really got any other announcements for this week, so we've just got now to find out what's happening in the resource centre with our friend Hugh. Well, hello everybody. Have you missed me? I've been, I'm back off my holes. Uh, had a lovely time. Got a bit of a suntan. Got pickpocketed in Tarragona, which some of you I think have already heard about, uh, which was quite the adventure. But there we are. Um, 
we live and learn and try not to be too gullible the next time. Um, if you want any more details about that, catch me up and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the entertaining, if very expensive, story. Um, now, uh, you will be aware, of course, that the Grand Summer Raffle is currently underway. Uh, we've got uh, £250 cash uh, as the first prize and a meat tray as second prize and then loads of other really uh, splendid, splendid prizes as well. Uh, tickets are a pound each. They come in books of five, so, you know, we'd be happy for you to buy a whole book of five. Um, if you don't want to buy tickets, and we sincerely hope you will to support the charity, uh, you can always uh, take a whole bunch and try and sell them on to other people, uh, and that will support the charity as well. Uh, the draw takes place on the 9th of September, which is a day that we also have um, an event um, for the charity shop here, going large in the car park again. So... Uh, um, uh, yep, should be should be great. So we're looking forward. To, we've already sold quite a few tickets, so we're very pleased about that. But we need to sell more. So uh, the more we can sell, the better for the charity. Thank you very much. Uh, now the uh, I know Joe talked a little bit about this last week. We have the Coventry Leofric Lions. Um, for years they've done the Walkathon, but they've changed changed it a little bit now, and they've calling calling it Move for Fun, uh, which takes place on Sunday the 10th of September. So that's the day after the um, the raffle is drawn. Um, and basically they're saying, uh, why don't you get sponsored uh, to uh, walk or push or pull, literally moving as far as you can uh, for as long as you are able to around the uh, the park at the War Memorial, uh, the War Memorial Park route. Um, it takes uh, place, well, it, it they say it starts at 10 o'clock, but really it starts at 11. Uh, you can enter online uh, by going to www.leofriclions.org.uk forward slash move for fun. Uh, what might be uh, a bit easier is to call for more info, which is 0345-833-2821. I'll give that number again, 0345 833 2821. Uh, the route is pushchair, wheelchair, and dog friendly. So the idea is uh, you go and take part and you uh, get sponsored and uh, give the money to the organization that you're being sponsored for, which we sincerely hope will be us. So if you fancy coming here, go at that. Uh, uh, we'll help if necessary to uh, get you signed up. Um, they've got a thing going on. It's like, take a bow, wear a bow tie, which almost works. Um, so, that's, uh, so that's that. And then, um, now... Because I've been away for a couple of weeks, normally I'd have given you a bit more notice about this, but there is a theatre trip going to be planned, and uh, I am, so the, uh, really it starts, uh, the, for the Criterion, there's a play called Beryl. And uh, it's by Maxine Peake, and many of you will know her. She's a very famous actress uh, who um, appears on the TV. She's absolutely terrific and a great playwright as well. And Beryl celebrates the extraordinary achievements of the remarkable and inspirational cyclist Beryl Burton. She was five times World Pursuit Champion, 13 times National Champion, and these represent only a portion of her amazing achievements. Burton was one of the most astonishing sports people ever to have lived, but she remains something of a mystery. So Maxine Peake captures this remarkable woman in a piece of drama which is pacey, funny and moving. Four actors play a multitude of roles to bring this celebration to the stage. So it sounds 
like quite a lot of fun. So it runs from the 2nd of September, uh, which is um, a week on Saturday, um, up until the 9th of September. So I propose, I'm just having a quick look at my diary here, uh, that, the, that we go on the 6th, which is the Wednesday, the 6th of September. Uh, so if you want to go on this, um, the tickets are going to be... He goes back very quickly to the website. Um, tickets are... Oh, here we are. Dun, dun. Uh, £12.50. Uh, and uh, then we'll... So we'll arrange a touch tour um, uh, for the afternoon about 5 o'clock. Uh, come back up here for fish and chips, which you pay for separately. Uh, if you want the bus, it's uh, £6. So if you want to go on this theatre trip, you've got basically one week to uh, to get yourself organised. Uh, I will be closing the list um, uh, next Wednesday, probably. Uh, if you'd like to come to see Beryl at the Criterion Theatre on the 6th of September, the Wednesday uh, phone up um, reception uh, let um, uh, uh, Heather well, or Carol know and um, they'll put you on the list and then we'll, we'll sort it all out um, finally uh, some very sad news that we learned at the end of last week um, was that um, Jeff Harris who's the uh, who, who owned Coventry Plumbing and Heating Supplies um, uh, sadly died uh, fairly suddenly um, after a hospital operation. Um, he was a superb benefactor of the charity. Um, he gave us a significant amount of money when we bought the site back in 2018. Uh, but he's supported us in so many ways um, over the years uh, in our fundraising efforts. Indeed, our £250 first prize uh, for the raffle um, has been, was donated by him. Um, and he's been, he, when we bought uh, the uh, Boston Lodge, um, he got a whole bunch of people together, a bit like... Um, uh, the TV program to come in and help us to uh, get the bathrooms all sorted and get the place decorated and usable for us. Um, and uh, he's, we're going to miss him very greatly. He used to pop in every now and again uh, to, um, you know, to, to see how things were. He was taking part in a few activities as well because he had a visual impairment himself. So, um, We'll, when it comes to his uh, funeral, we'll let you know, because a lot of people here did know him. Um, but so we, uh, we have lost a very great friend uh, in Jeff, and um, it's really quite a sad moment for us all. Um, so that, my friends, is it for this week, uh, and I will be back with you next. And now, here's this week's sports report with Sarah. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, listeners. It's Sarah, and welcome to sport. Oh, what a week it's been. Anyway, I'll start off by keeping it local. So, on Saturday, my wonderful Coventry City Football Club travelled down south and across a bit, excuse the geography, to Swansea a new ground they have never won at. They've drawn, but never won. And needless to say, nothing changed 
when we drew 1-1. Now, if I'd said to you last season, Ladder Baudier passes to Hadji Wright, passes to Sakamoto, you'd be thinking, who are they? Well, you're probably still thinking, who are they? They're just three of our new signings. But then when I said Ladder Baudier passes to Hadji Wright, passes to Sakamoto, passes to Gordon, and Gordon scores, you'd know it was Coventry City. Anyway, after he'd won, unfortunately, he was probably still celebrating with his new sort of celebration dance where he imitates an aeroplane. Mm-hmm. Um, but Swansea picked up the ball, went down the other end and promptly equalised. So it was 1-1 before half-time and there it remained until the end of the match. Despite, it has to be said, Coventry having most of the second half and coming terribly close, especially that Godden bloke again. But never mind, one point is better than no points. And for anybody who's interested, after three matches, we are now ninth. So hopefully we will do better by before the end of the season. But that's a flipping good start. Because the team we lost to in our first match, Leicester City, remain the only side in our division to have won all three of their matches and be on the perfect nine. But let's be truthful. Leicester shouldn't have come down. They were very unlucky. But I'm sure the fans of Everton would not like me saying that. Now, going down to the so-called lower leagues or non-league, Leamington were unlucky to lose to Micklover. No goals to one. That goal being scored quite near the end and by a former Sky Blues City football player. Hey-ho. Now, Alverton Church beat Stratford 1-0 at Alf Church. But poor old Nuneaton, they travelled to Salford and it must have been a heck of a long coach journey home because they lost 7 nil now i haven't been able to confirm that on facebook but that was certainly what cwr said so i have no reason to doubt it any fans of the oval ball out there you'll be pleased to know that coventry rugby club are gearing up for the start of the new season and this week plays a pre-season friendly at Butts Park against Leicester Lions. Yes, the Lions, not the Tigers. Anyway, Coventry ran out winners 32 points to 21. So it must have been a good match. And now I'll go to the National. As you know, I do not keep my emotions concealed when it comes to sport. 
I am passionate about it and get really hyper when we're doing well and really low when we're not. So this week has been a real roller coaster of an occasion. The highest of high beating Australia 3-1 in the semi-final of the Women's World Cup. The lowest of the low losing to Spain one goal to nil in the final of the Women's World Cup. But then that roller coaster gaining pace up again to see KJT winning the heptathlon in the World Athletics. So let's unpack all of those. Australia, 3-1. Yes, it was Australia in Australia. And I am rather happy. Two standout features of that match. Firstly, I did think the best goal of the four was the goal from Sam Kerr, the Australian captain and talisman and poster girl, etc., etc., playing her first full game after injury. But her goal was a superb strike from about 30 yards out, just drilled straight in. Goal. And that brought Australia level. The only thing I will say about Sam Kerr, and we can claim a bit of credit in England for, is she plays for Chelsea. Mm-hmm. The second thing was how once our third goal had gone in and Australia were two goals down, they pretty much gave up. There was still more than six minutes on the clock, but their attitude was one of, oh, Evans, let's just get this over with. Now, I remember many a matchup with the old city where when one side has still been two goals down and there have been six minutes of injury time, that team has gone all hell for leather. And I can remember teams, both Coventry and the opponents, scoring those two goals to equalise in full time. But not the Aussies. Perhaps it was because it was the English. But Now, the final on... On Sunday against Spain, I was really excited and got all ready to watch it. Well, when I say already, I made me morning cup of tea and cup and piece of toast. Uh, getting dressed and getting off the sofa would have been one step too far. But to be truthful, England just did not seem to turn up, as we say in sport. I mean, the Spanish absolutely dominated and it was a very uncomfortable watch. Big congratulations to our goalie who saved a penalty. That was probably one of the, the English highlights, I have to say. We had a few shots towards goal, but I wouldn't necessarily say that they taxed, tasked their goalie and I'm sorry Serena Serena Wiegmann our manager I've been a great fan of yours but why on earth you substituted Russo in the second half hey ho what do I know 
Now, when you think about it, this was the ninth Women's World Cup. First one being in 1991. In fact, working backward, you know, starting at the very back. During the First World War, when women were taking over, particularly in the munitions factories, women started playing football and, and playing in their works leagues, and you could did get little leagues going. But then in 1921, the FA actually decreed women's football not allowed certainly not allowed on any of their owned grounds. And that did not change until 1969. That is within a lifetime, <laughs> literally. I mean, I was five in 1969 and football just wasn't played by girls when I was a youngster. I mean, no football was played at my school by boys either, so... But, you know, we, we didn't get involved in football because I actually think I'd have liked it because I'm quite speedy on my feet. But, anyway, the first England team was formed in 1984 and then we have had a few ventures in the World Cup. But to come second in a World Cup is pretty damn good. And I think it has given the right shot in the arm for women's football. I'm particularly proud, actually, because I covered it on Commentary Talking newspaper right back from when we were winning 20 goals to nil when we were going through the qualifying rounds. And in fact, I remember one of my colleagues in the studio at the time saying, oh, I don't know why the ref didn't just blow when I was, when I was refereeing some of the under eights and under elevens boys. I would just blow if the score was too far one-sided. Well, presenter, no doubt you would, but this is an official FIFA regulated. And I bet you wouldn't be saying that now. So, how did I pick myself up last night? Well, I switched to the World Athletics. And how brilliant it was to see KJT, or to give her a full name, Katerina Johnson-Thompson, winning gold in the heptathlon. It quite made me quite tearful. Katerina first competed competitively, or in the major championships, at London 2012. So that is 11 years later, she's still competing. And she didn't choose an easy event, oh no. She's in the heptathlon. That is seven events. So you have to keep your body and your skill level and everything going over seven events. And she's also had quite a hard luck story, as have most heptathletes, because in Tokyo Olympics 2021, 
actually badly ruptured or tore or something a muscle in one of her legs in the sprinting. She split with a coach, went to the States, came back and rejoined her coach, which is always a nice thing to see. But to think, I mean, most athletes will pick one event, usually their favourite event, and will really work at it. But she's done seven. So you're talking about long jump, high jump, shot put, javelin, 100 metre hurdle, 200 metre sprint, and the lung busting final event of the 800 metres. But as she said, well, I just wanted to finish to prove I could. I didn't expect to win, so I didn't have any nerves. Well, I assure you, Kat, I sure had nerves coming into your final run. Anyway, that has been the sport. And next week, I will bring you a roundup of the world athletics. Bye for now. Have a great week. More interesting sport from Sarah and a big congratulations to the Lionesses for getting to the final. But sad that they didn't win. But you can't win them all, girls. Try again. This is Postbank. Join in the discussion. Hello there. Welcome to your Postbag. Now, Pete Smith headlines Postbag this week by talking about his and Joe's birthday outing to a show in London. This is Pete. Our trip to London started off from the beginning of the week on Monday the 31st when we celebrated, we both celebrated the same birthday on the 31st of July. To go with that, uh, we thought we'd treat ourselves to a trip to London to see a show called We Will Rock You. So uh, we got ourselves all geared up for that and went to see it on Thursday afternoon of the 3rd of August and uh, we both enjoyed it it was a brilliant afternoon and the music and the show was very good it was all about um, a musical family with uh, all the music from Queen being the basis of the background music and they played all their songs from the time that Queen started in the 70s. And the story revolved around a musical family uh, that were trying to sort of um, put their musical talents to get together and they did a lot of singing and that. And the show was actually... The story of the show was actually a story invented by Ben Elton, the actor, sort of singer person, actor comedian person, and uh, he uh, also starred in it. He was like the uh, father or uncle or something like that of the family. 
Uh, he's like the father figure, yeah. So uh, uh, he played a big part in it. And we had a good afternoon musically because we was the, the tickets we got was meant that we could sit at the front of the auditorium stalls auditorium and uh, it was quite a powerful show from where we sat so uh, also in the interval because we had assistance and one thing like that we get to a seat and one thing like that we were given the opportunity to sort of have some refreshments at break time at the break time and they took us to a, a quiet room area for 20 minutes to do that, you know, and looked after us. The theatre is supposed to be one of the biggest theatres, or the biggest theatre in London. It was called the London Coliseum. And this show is, up there, is on for at least two months or something like that. Glad he had a nice time, Pete and Joe, who met at the resource centre, by the way. They were a lovely couple. And tell us where you've been to be entertained. Julia went to the resource centre, Summer Fate, and has done this report on it, which was really good of you. Summer? What summer? It peed down all day. It wasn't in the garden either. Still, I went with my friend Jen the one with the big bum, to the resource centre and we met lots of old friends. There was my friend Katie from the Monday Club. She was selling raffle tickets and I bought one, but it didn't win. My friend Pat brought me better luck. She was on the tombola and I won some oven gloves and a penny. Aren't I the lucky girl? Anne was selling baby's cardigans and I thought of buying one for my friend John, but I've got better things to do with my money. I thought John would be hanging around the cake stall, but I didn't see him there, so I went to the Mary Beale with my friend. I sat with Marjorie and Marie, who knows my mum, my brother from church. Who do you think I sat with next? Only the Lord and Lady and Mayor, and the man from the council. Then I met my very good friend David Monks, MBE from Postbag, and we had a good old chat. It was a shame about the rain, but the silver lining was that my friend John wasn't there. Every cloud, as they say, loved Julia. Well, thank you, Julia. The Lady Mayoress Krishna is lovely, and she has such nice things to say when I record her. They had lovely food at the summer fete. Edwina talked about the healing properties of rich tea biscuits. I just thought of this tip, which I hope doesn't happen to you, but so many people go abroad now, and they're eating very different foods. Sometimes it means and upset some of me for a few days. So I just wanted to let you know that if you buy McVitie's Rich Tea Biscuits and you eat those, it will take your tummy upset away. So hopefully it's not something you've got to do 
But I just thought it could be a tip that would help. Take care then. Bye. Thank you, Edwina. It seems the rich tea biscuits are ideal for dunking in a cup of tea, which is a healing potion. If you're feeling under the weather, have a problem, or receive some shock news perhaps, someone will tell you, I'll just pop the kettle on. Can you think of a situation where you've experienced the healing properties of a cup of tea? I don't know if Wilco's sold tea, they probably did, because they sold nearly everything, a very wide range of goods. And Graham, though, is missing them already. Well, there's another city centre shop going to close, Wilco's, and what a shame. I have an old-fashioned radio in the kitchen, the Murphy's radio, which I bought for my mother when she was alive. It was a simple radio which she could uh, operate herself. And of course I've inherited. It's quite a good radio, actually. But apart from being a little bit old-fashioned, it also takes an old-fashioned PP9 battery, which you can't actually get from your local convenience store. Usually you've got to go to a specialist electrical shop like Warmeath's. But Wilkins is a shop in the city centre which I know if I'm passing I could go in and get one. And there are other things I can get from Wilkins which I can't get anywhere else. And it's such a shame because even if part of the receivership deal means that they're taken over by another shop, it's quite likely that they will drop these marginal items which they don't sell many of. And uh, whichever, whatever happens, it will be such a shame. Thank you, Graham. Like Woolworths. It catered for your every need, and now it's gone. Uh, tell us what stores that you remember, and tell us where you do your shopping. Chris, Norman and Claire hired recumbent bikes at Wrighton Pools during a lovely day in the summer. The three-wheeler bikes with two wheels at the front are very low to the ground, which really gives you a great in impression of speed and you sit back with your legs in front of you and pedal Chris described them at the resource centre summer fate in the marquee with it raining outside and yeah the tadpole trike is what we were on apparently so there you go so can you describe it please so you're sat in like an office chair very low to the ground uh, and where the arms of the office chair would normally be, that's your handlebars, so you've got your brakes on them, and your feet are in front of you and slowly upwards where the pedals are, and the, the chain kind of runs um, through a, what looks like a hose pipe between your legs, to and from the, you know, the, the uh, whatever apparatus is under your bum to power the back wheels um, and, and, the, and the gears and, and stuff. Sorry, no, I think it's powered at the front wheel, actually. Oh, I don't know. Whatever it's powered by, anyway. Front wheel must be. Um, but they're a lot of fun, and because they're low to the ground, they're a lot more stable, so you can't fall out of them very easily. Um, and they're just a heck of a lot of fun, actually. We really enjoyed ourselves. Now, Chris's dad, Paul Norman, uh, who uh, guided him, told him which way to go on his uh, recumbent bike, said that the children used to uh, ride them at Exhall Grange School and thought the resource centre might like to try them on an outing. They don't require you to be able to balance, which is an advantage. A guide would be needed if you are blind. Claire was zooming round on her own, and when I met Chris, 
uh, Claire just bumped straight into him and she also got lost at one point but they had a lovely time though they really did oh Chris and Claire had been to Lighten Pools before with a walking group called the Jabberwockies that's a smashing name <laughs> great so tell us about your activities what do you do do you take part in sports are you going to the World Blind Games in Birmingham and also the Rico yeah tell us if you've been and uh, thank you very much for your messages this week we are getting a bit short so please let's hear from you next time it would be fantastic to hear from you thank you and bye for now this is Outlook you can contact Postbag our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk join in the discussion on Postbag so Dave there with your Postbag for this week so, Dave, there with your postbag for this week. Now, recently, some very major work was undertaken on the historic Charter House on London Road, which goes back nearly 700 years. And this week, Margaret's going to tell us more in this piece, written by Ian Harabin. As the opening of Charter House and its historic heritage park approaches, Ian Harabin, Chair of Historic Coventry Trust, reflects on the story so far. As a boy growing up in Coventry, Ian Harabin was not even aware that Charterhouse existed. At that time, nobody was aware of it, he recalls. I don't think anybody really knew what went on there or what its story was. For him, that changed when he began to get to know members of the Charterhouse Residence Group as part of his company's major restoration project in Far Gosford Street. Hearing from an agent that Charterhouse was coming on the market, he investigated and realised that it had been bequeathed to the people of the city and should not have been put up for sale. It took him 18 months to persuade Tile Hill College, who then had control of it, to give Charterhouse to a new charity that he would set up to restore it and bring it back into the public limelight. From the start, he says, it was clear that as a heritage visitor attraction, Charterhouse was not big enough to stand on its own, but that including a park around it, already sacrosanct to local people, would give it the scale it needed. Although his own grandparents were buried in the new section of the London Road Cemetery, he knew nothing about the original cemetery and its history, but he quickly realised that it made the project much more attractive as a crowd puller. Now, as work on the Charter House and its Heritage Park nears completion, he can reflect on the years of struggle to get it to this point. It has been, he concedes, in some ways, the project from hell, but he regards himself as an optimist and has never doubted that it would happen one day. The key to bringing it all together, he explains, was to overcome council scepticism and make a proper connection over the London Road, one of the busiest arterial roads in the city and a virtual racetrack. Getting the speed limit reduced to 30 mile an hour and a proper pedestrian crossing installed has only enhanced what was there already. 
One of the things that's very special about Charterhouse is that when you are there, you think you've gone back in time. It's even quieter now, and it's sometimes hard to imagine that you are so close to the main road, just a mile from the city centre. He believes that all the heritage assets entrusted to the historic Coventry Trust, more than 20 in all, Charterhouse is perhaps the most important historically, and is certainly the most important socially. I feel that we've done this project with the community, and that we have developed a real friendship over the years. They've secured considerable funding themselves for projects like the car park which was needed. Apart from its role as a community asset, the Charter House and its park also fits neatly into the City Council's aims to strengthen the visitor economy in Coventry, encouraging visitors to stay longer. Ian Harabin agrees that that's an important economic argument. Places that highlight their heritage are much more economically vibrant than places that don't. At the end of the day, if people don't know these places are there, they won't care about them. We know that Coventry is not a concrete jungle and bringing its history to life gives people a pride in being from the city. Charterhouse opened to the public on the 1st of April. Recently in the news, Elaine read an article that talked about the Dippy exhibition at the Herbert. So I thought I'd say a little bit more about young Master Dippy, because I work there as a city host most Saturday mornings, so I've got to know him rather well. So what is Dippy, or who is Dippy? Well... Dippy is a life-size model of a Diplodocus, the model being made of plaster of Paris and resin and painted appropriate bone colour, presumably. Now, he is only a replica because the original lives in a museum in Pennsylvania in the States. And he is living at the Herbert Art Gallery until February 2026. But don't wait until then because you know what it's like. Oh, I'll do it tomorrow. Go and have a look at him now if you are able. Particularly if you've got little ones because the littlies really love it. You'd be amazed by the noise level some Saturdays. In fact, my advice would be if you haven't got children or you have children who can go sort of in the week, go in the week. The exhibition is free and you're advised to book online beforehand. But don't worry about that because really it's only if it gets exceptionally busy we have to limit numbers for fire regulations, but we've never had to turn people away. Now, a Diplodocus is best known for having a very small head and a very long tail. Head to tail, he's 26 metres long, and I would say tip to toe, he's about 12 metres. And just to give those of you who, shall we say, don't have the best vision in the bright sun, which it can be some days at the Herbert, the head is pointing down Priory Street towards the university. 
and the tail up Priory Street. Now, when Dippy moved in, he came, every bone came in a separate packing case. That is all 356 of them. And then he was assembled like a jigsaw. He also, for reference, has 46 teeth. Unlike a human who has 206 bones and 32 teeth. So he's very big and I certainly wouldn't want to meet him one day in the precinct. Although having said that, we can rest assured because when he was alive, he was a herbivore. Now just a word of advice about the exhibition from a visual impairment point of view. There is nothing there that you can feel and nothing that you can hear except in the virtual reality experience, which you have to pay more for. So probably, unless you are going with Litlands, if your vision is severely limited, you might not get the best out of it. You can get right up within a couple of feet of the skeleton, the bits that come down to earth. But you can't get nearer, you can't feel, and there is no sound. But what they do have is an information leaflet, booklet, in Braille, which is permanently on reception. So when you go in, just ask. So what's keeping you? It's free, it's local, and it'll be going back to the National History Museum very soon, or sooner than you think. Go on, have a look at him. Make my day. Just as a little PS, because I forgot to say it earlier, the original Dippy is more than the bones of one Diplodocus, because obviously they found it in sort of little chunks, and so they don't actually know whether he is a he or a she or a bit of both. But it makes no difference, he's very nice. If you've not seen Dippy yet, he's on loan to the museum for a bit longer, so there's still time to go and meet him face to face. Now, from rare prehistoric animals to one of the world's most numerous chickens. An unlikely pen pal relationship between Debo, the Duchess of Devonshire, and Arthur Parkinson led to Arthur's passion for poultry. And this article, read by Sue, is about Arthur's acclaimed memoir in which he reveals how the chicken came home to roost. I was a toddler the first time I met a chicken. The hen had tiny eyelashes, a strawberry jam face and a voice of purring clucks. I sensed a happy spirit of inquisitiveness. From that moment on, I always loved the company of chickens. Life in our tiny cottage in Hucknall, an ex-mining town in Nottingham, was rich in colour and creativity, and I discovered the love and satisfaction to be found in caring for living things when my father built me my first chicken house, the first of many.
By the time my brother Lyndon and I were born, Hucknall was left with the old slag heap, now planted with thousands of saplings. All around its lower slopes were allotments, and my grandparents knew one of the allotment holders, John, whose hens were the main attraction. John had a merry flock of laying girls, several dozen of them, living in a big turquoise painted shed. Gathering freshly laid, palm-warm eggs was the main treat, each one a totally perfect piece of work. The hens laid their eggs in deep old wooden fruit boxes lined with straw. My first hens came from Dad's friends, Tony and Anne, and we returned from their small holding with two brown, but now very individual, in my mind at least, hens. One of the hens laid her first egg after an hour of settling in. They were very good hens, happy to be picked up and carried about the place, and they certainly laid well. But most importantly, they provided me with a crash course in poultry practicalities. Town allotments had been the first setting of my life with chickens. The other would happen thanks to my grandparents' passion for holidaying in Derbyshire. It was our version of going to the seaside. We would instead spend days walking across the peaks, but a day out at Chatsworth House, the historic seat of the Devonshire family, was the treat of our holiday. The wonderful thing about childhood is that you have no idea of adult status, or really who anyone is. Imagination reigns. I first saw Deborah Devonshire, or Debo as she was known to family and friends, in what is probably the most celebrated photograph ever taken of hen-keeping. It's by the American fashion photographer Bruce Weber, and shows Debo feeding her hens in an evening dress and cloak, and wearing her iconic pearls. This photo was on the back cover of one of my granddad Ted's lovely gardening books that he kept on a low shelf. I was besotted by the image. I had no idea back then that the woman in question was the Duchess of Devonshire, married to Andrew Cavendish, the 11th Duke, or that she was the youngest of the famed Mitford sisters, the world's first version of the Kardashians. To me, she was just a beautiful, mesmerising queen of chickens. I quickly loved Chatsworth, even before knowing about Debo, because of the presence of all her chickens. Usually I'd seek a few hens out, perhaps tucked away behind some outbuildings or in a kitchen garden. Chatsworth, though, had more chickens than anywhere I'd ever been before. Hens quickly bustled to greet you, with over a hundred roosting in the former game larder, a listed building. Together with neighbouring hen houses, there were enough chickens to supply the Chatsworth farm shop. The farmyard was, and still is to this day, the jewel in Debo's crown from her time as Duchess. She set it up in 1973 to educate visiting children and adults alike after noticing the teachers who brought the children to the estate had an alarming lack of basic knowledge about how the countryside produces the food we eat. All the hens, both the laying machines as she called them, and the pedigrees, 
were free to wander and peck the grass verges of the large visitor car park. The flock used the parked cars for shade and would go about in beady-eyed gangs on the lookout for picnics. It was Grandad Ted who suggested I should write to the person who owned them and told me it was the lady in the photograph I'd been looking at on the cover of his book about Chatsworth. I was about seven years old and it was the first letter I had ever wanted to write. I also attempted my best drawings of chickens. A few days later, a letter dropped through our letterbox, addressed to me as Arthur Parkinson Esquire. Apart from birthday cards, I'd never had an actual handwritten letter sent to me. It was thrilling. From then on, I wrote to Her Grace Deborah Devonshire, Duchess of Devonshire, and always about one and another's chickens. Debo had chosen beautiful photos of her chickens to be made into postcards for the shops at Chatsworth, and she wrote her warm, interested replies on these, encouraging my own hatching passion for poultry. My grandmother, Nanny Min, was concerned. He's written to that duchess again. She's chicken mad. Oh, he'll be wanting more hens. Sue's going to complete that article for us next week when we'll find out how poultry helped Arthur's childhood depression and his parents' separation. So now it's time for another short story from Ali, written by Cynthia Townsend. And this one is called Memories of Dad. I'm sure I can't be the first person to say this, and I'm sure I won't be the last. But I had a love-hate relationship with my dad. It was no secret that I was a bit of a willful child and could try the patience of the devil. I wasn't naughty, just very cheeky. I would have to have the last word after every argument, much to the annoyance of my dad, who, like me, also liked to have the last word. There would be times in our lives that we would laugh so much it hurt, and then there would be times that I despised him because of how cruel he'd been to myself and my siblings, and more often than not, to my mum. Mum and Dad were like chalk and cheese. He had a very short fuse and could blow up like a bottle of pop over the slightest thing, and Mum was the peacemaker. She calmed things down and tried to make sure that if Dad was going off on one of his rants, she made it all right again with the offer of a cup of tea and a biscuit. Dad was a hard person to read. He ruled the house with a rod of iron. He was always telling us off for having fun while screaming with delight, chasing each other around the garden with our water pistols. We were used to getting a clip round the ear or a hard smack if we misbehaved, but we weren't excessively bad. We were just normal. Dad was an only child and didn't realise that kids fought and argued and were very loud at times. Mum, on the other hand, was the youngest of seven and was used to living in a noisy house, so she understood that this was what kids did. In spite of the many times that my dad was mean or cruel to my mum and us, she always told us not to be disrespectful and try not to upset him. Honestly, we didn't upset him on purpose, but there were times that we did go out of our way just to get a reaction from him. The one person in the household that Dad never told off was his dog, Dougal. 
Dougal was a little cairn terrier and could get away with murder. Dad doted on that dog and took him everywhere. Dad was a rep for a tyre company and Dougal would go to work with him every day and sit in the car when Dad went to meet the clients. Those clients that knew Dougal would ask if he could come in and meet the workforce and they'd make a fuss of him while Dad was doing his deals. Dougal absolutely loved the attention. He was a bit of a show pony and the more fuss he got, the more hyperactive he was, which was a pain for Dad having to try and calm him down before he jumped back on his feet in the car. We loved Dougal as well, but we all thought that if he was a human, then Dad would have thought he was the perfect child, devoted, quiet and happy to be wherever Dad was. Mum told us a lot about Dad's childhood and why maybe he wasn't the most understanding of parents. She said that his mum and dad were very odd and were not great parents themselves. Dad was a bright lad. He did very well at school and could have gone to university if he'd have carried on at school. But his father was having none of it. He wanted my dad to leave school at 15 and work for the same tyre company. There was no discussion. It was the way it was going to be. No arguing. My grandfather was very strict and used a belt to chastise my dad should he step out of line. My dad was so scared of my grandfather, there was no talking to him, no reasoning with him. It was his way or nothing. When dad was a boy, he'd always wanted a puppy. And he was given one from a litter of his friend's dog. He was so excited, he took him home to show his parents. My nan liked him and gave him an old shirt to lie on by the fireplace. However, she told my dad not to get too used to him, as she didn't think my granddad would let him keep him, and she was right. As soon as my granddad got home from work and saw Pip by the fireplace, he said one word, out, and Pip the pup was banished to the shed until the next morning, when dad had to take him back to his friend, his tear-stained face handing him over. So that's why your dad loves Dougal so much, said mum. He's the dog that he always wanted and was never allowed to have. These little insights into my dad's childhood made me appreciate why he was the way he was with us. Dad was only doing to us what his dad did to him. He didn't know any better. It was our job to try and educate him into letting us have the benefit of the doubt, to believe us when we told him he could trust us to be good whenever we were out with friends, and to let us go into further and higher education, something he was never allowed to do. The things that Mum told us over time to explain the way our dad treated us all made sense. He was ruled with a rod of iron, so that is how he ruled us. He was hit often by his dad, and so were we. However, as we grew older and able to reason with Dad, he mellowed a lot and let us do things and go to places that he wouldn't have been allowed to do at his age. He slowly began to break the cycle of emotional blackmail that his parents used on him, and only occasionally used it on us. He wasn't keen on any of us leaving home to go to college. He had envisaged that we'd all be around him at his beck and call, just like he was with his parents. But let us go, he did, and we all carved out careers for ourselves. My brother even went to live and work in America, something that would have been unheard of in my granddad's day. He let us have pets. Not only a dog, but we had cats, budgies and fish, and he even let us stay over and have sleepovers at our friends. Yes, he wasn't an easy man to live with, but the more I found out about how he was treated by his parents made me appreciate that he didn't know any better, 
and that all the times he'd given in to us and let us go our own way was a big deal for him. When I was a lot older and after my mum had passed away, I spent virtually every weekend with my dad. He didn't have a good relationship with my brother and sister. And my mum asked me to make sure I kept an eye on him. She knew that of the three of us, I'd be more likely to do that. Although I was working and living 40 miles away, I would go home every weekend to see Dad. We had some heartfelt chats about my childhood memories and the way he used to treat us. He was sad that I relived so many unhappy times as a child, and he said that he didn't realise just how much his mood swings and his strict ways had hurt us. My brother and sister couldn't move away fast enough, and he had no relationship with them. He did acknowledge that maybe he could have done things differently but he didn't know how. The way his parents were with him was a pattern he repeated and used on us. The weekend chats with my dad became something I used to look forward to, and although the memories of my harsh childhood never left me, I'm glad that before he died, we got to know each other better, and both realised that we actually got on well. It was just so sad we had to wait so long. Now, I hope you remember that last week, Dave and Graham visited Sheffield, the home of their family roots. This time, they're still in the city and meet up with an elderly gentleman whose emotive story instigated a fly-past in memory of a stricken American bomber that crashed in a park. I met Tony Folds by the stepping stones, filling up two watering cans from the ported brook to water the flowers at the beautiful Mi Amigo Memorial to ten American Air Force personnel who crashed into Encliffe Woods. It was a chance meeting with Breakfast TV presenter Dan Walker walking his dog that led to a fly-past on the 75th anniversary of the crash. This is Tony's account of that fateful day. Can you tell us your story, please? When I was eight years old, there were two schools. I went to one called Sympathians, the other one was a monastery. We never liked each other. So we decided this particular day, yeah. three from each school would come and have a fight in park. That's what it was about. As we were in park, this was quarter past four at night, on 22nd of February, we heard this bomber coming over. It was an American B-17 flame fortress, all shot up, which had just been on a mission to Denmark. It got back to here by mistake. It should have made for Chelveston, which is the base in Norfolk. Instead, they came here. Now, uh, because they couldn't go no further, they wanted to, they hoped to land on park. Now, because us six were on park, they circled three times, hoping that by on the third time we'd have gone home. We hadn't. They had to make a decision. Shall we try and land on here and hope we don't take these children, or shall we die? They decided to die. Right, we're walking towards the cafe 
now and the last time I was here not so long ago with Graham I donated a picture, a photograph of my granddad Professor Delisle with all his conjuring tricks and I donated it to the cafe to hang upon the wall because he used to do his Punch and Judy shows in the park here so let's see if it's on the wall well uh, now I am inside Sheffield uh, Enclave Park Cafe at the moment and my granddad's picture that I've donated with all these magic tricks and two ventriloquist puppets are on display in the, the cafe by the door and I thought that's re really nice are you, are you impressed with that? I'm very impressed okay now Graham you've seen We've seen all sorts of references in street names to Norfolk and Arundel. Yeah, the uh, Duke of Norfolk owns a lot of the land in uh, Sheffield, yeah. Yeah, because the Duke of Norfolk owned the steelworks. So he virtually, the Norfolk family virtually owned Sheffield at the time. And the Duke of Norfolk was the mayor of Sheffield. And my granddad, Professor Delisle, used to entertain the, the Duchess of Norfolk and her children with his conjuring and punch and Judy. The Duke of Norfolk is the president at Arundel Castle. That's it, we've been there, yes. Right, so we're walking along the Park Hill Estate. Uh, loads of flats that were built to, to replace terrace houses. It's got different colours on the outside, uh, like um, orange and yellow blocks, yeah. Okay, right, so, uh, so what's this going to do with Doctor Who? One of the characters was um, based here. Well, uh, now, I am inside Sheffield uh, Enclave Park Cafe at the moment and my granddad's picture that I've donated with all these magic tricks and two ventriloquist puppets are on display in the, the cafe by the door and I thought that's re really nice. Are you, are you impressed with that? Yeah. I'm, I'm very impressed. <laughs> I'm asking the head chef, so what uh, TV programmes and films have been filmed here? Uh, Currently, what I know of is they did uh, the Full Monty TV series a couple months back. Uh, Robert Carlyle, he was up here. Well, we end our visit to Sheffield at Western Park Museum, where my uh, granddad's Punch and Judy puppets are on display that I donated, and they're in a permanent housing behind a glass wall fantastic so thanks a lot for the outing to Sheffield and the gig with Julian Jones yeah, it's been great yeah it has been great thank you very much so from Sheffield bye for now bye the fly pass sounds a fitting and emotive memorial to the stricken airmen now just before we leave, Nigel has got a small quiz for you. There's no prizes, but just something to occupy your mind for a few minutes. And the answers will be given out next week. This little quiz, some of which will find very easy, some more difficult, and some uh, even more difficult. It's all based on potluck questions. So, number one. In verse, which bells said... You owe me five farthings. Next. How is the singer Thomas Woodward better known? 
Thomas Woodward. And who wrote the novel My Family and Other Animals? How many gallons are there in a bushel? In America, what is the traditional Thanksgiving Day dessert? How many of Henry VIII's wives were executed? Joss Gifford is associated with which sport? That's Joss Gifford. Hydrophobia is the fear of what? In the 1980s, who had a number one hit with I Should Be So Lucky? What is the only English anagram of ochre? That's ochre, O-C-H-R-E. And finally, what type of apes live on the rock of Gibraltar? I thought Nigel said there were 12 questions, but there only counted 11. One of us wasn't paying very much attention. So that brings us to the end of this edition of Outlook. So from the team and me, Sheila Allen, it's goodbye till next week.